Section 13 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 3, The Great Explorers and Travelers of the Nineteenth Century, by Jules Verne. First Part, Chapter 2, Part 2, The Exploration and Colonization of Africa, 6. On the 9th January, 1828, Callier left Temay and reached Kimba, a little village where the caravan for Jenna was assembled. Near to this village rises the chain erroneously called Kong, which is the general name for mountain amongst the Mandingos. The names of the villages entered by the travelers and the incidents of the journey through Bambara are of no special interest. The inhabitants are accounted great thieves by the Mandingos, but are probably not more dishonest than their critics. The Bambara women all wear a thin slip of wood embedded in the lower lip, a strange fashion exactly similar to that noticed by Cook amongst the natives of the northwestern coast of America. The Bambaras speak Mandingo, though they have a dialect of their own called Kisur, about which the traveler could obtain no trustworthy written information. Jenna was formerly called the Golden Land. The precious metal is not, however, found there, but a good deal is imported by the Burech merchants and the Mandingos of Kong. Jenna, two miles and a half in circumference, is surrounded by a mud wall ten feet high. The houses, built of bricks baked in the sun, are as large as those of European peasants. They have all terraces, but no outer windows. Numbers of foreigners frequent Jenna. The inhabitants, as many as eight or ten thousand, are very industrious and intelligent. They hire out their slaves, and also employ them in various handicrafts. The Moors, however, monopolize the more important commerce. Not a day passes that they do not dispatch huge boats laden with rice, millet, cotton, honey, vegetable butter, and other native products. In spite of this great commercial movement, the prosperity of Jenna was threatened. Sago Amadou, chief of the country, impelled by bigoted zeal, made fierce war upon the Bambaras of Sago, whom he wished to rally round the standard of the prophet. This struggle did a great deal of harm to the trade of Jenna, for it interrupted intercourse with Yamana, Sansanding, Bamaku, and Boreh, which were the chief marts for its produce. The women of Jenna would not be true to their sex if they did not show some marks of coquetry. Those who aim at fashion pass a ring or a glass ornament through the nostrils, whilst their poorer sisters content themselves with a bit of pink silk. During Callier's long stay at Jenna, he was loaded with kindness and attentions by the Moors, to whom he had told the fabulous tale about his birth in Egypt and abduction by the army of occupation. On the 23rd March, the traveler embarked on the Niger for Timbuktu, on which the sheriff, won over by the gift of an umbrella, had obtained a passage for him. He carried with him letters of introduction to the chief persons in Timbuktu. Callier now passed in succession the pretty villages of Kira, Taguisha, 
Sanka Gorbilla, Daibeh, and Issaca, near to which the river is joined by an important branch, which makes a great bend beyond Sago, catching sight also of Wandakora, Wanga, Korakuila, and Kona, finally reaching on the 2nd of April the mouth of the important Lake Debo. Land, says Callier, is visible on every side of this lake except on the west, where it widens out like a vast inland sea. Following its northern coast in a west-northwest direction for a distance of fifteen miles, you leave on the left a tongue of level ground, which runs several miles to the south, seeming to bar the passage of the lake and form a kind of strait. Beyond this barrier the lake stretches away out of sight in the west, the barrier I have just described cuts Lake Debo into two parts, the upper and lower. That navigable to boats contains three islands and is very wide. It stretches away a short distance on the east and is supplemented by an immense number of huge marshes. One after the other, Callier now passed the fishing village of Gabibi, Tangoon in the Diraman country, a district stretching far away on the east. Kadosa, an important commercial town, Barkanga, Leleb, Garfolo, Barakandi, Tersi, Tabakiola, Salakiola, Kora, Koratu, where the Tuareks exact a toll from passing boats, and finally reached Cabra, built on a height out of reach of the overflowing of the Niger, and serving as the port of Timbuktu. On the 20th, Callier disembarked and started for that city, which he entered at sundown. I, at last, cries our hero, saw the capital of the Sudan, which had so long been the goal of my desires. As I entered that mysterious town, an object of curiosity to the civilized nations of Europe, I was filled with indescribable exultation. I never experienced anything like it, and my delight knew no bounds. But I had to moderate my transports, and it was to God alone I confided them. With what earnestness I thanked him for the success which had crowned my enterprise and the signal protection he had accorded me in so many apparently insurmountable difficulties and perils. My first emotions having subsided, I found that the scene before me by no means came up to my expectations. I had conceived a very different idea of the grandeur and wealth of this town. At first sight it appeared nothing more than a mass of badly built houses, whilst on every side stretched vast plains of arid, yellowish, shifting sands. The sky was of a dull red color on the horizon, all nature seemed melancholy, profound silence prevailed, not so much as the song of a bird was heard. And yet there was something indescribably imposing in the sight of a large town rising up in the midst of the sandy desert, and the beholder cannot but admire the indomitable energy of its founders. I fancy the river formerly passed nearer the town of Timbuktu. It is now eight miles north of it and five of Cabra. End quote. Timbuktu, which is neither so large nor so well populated as Callier expected, is altogether wanting in animation. There are no large caravans constantly arriving in it, as at Jenna, nor are there so many strangers there as in the latter town, whilst the market, held at three o'clock in the morning on account of the heat, appears deserted. Timbuktu is inhabited by Kisur Negroes, who seem of mild dispositions and are employed in trade. There is no government, and strictly speaking, no central authority. Each town and village has its own chief. 
the mode of life is patriarchal a great many moorish merchants are settled in the town and rapidly make fortunes there they receive consignments of merchandise from adrar tafilet gat gadams algiers tunis and tripoli to timbuktu is brought all the salt of all the mines of tudeni packed on camels it is imported in slabs bound together by ropes made from grass in the neighborhood of tandie timbuktu is built in the form of a triangle and measures about three miles in circumference the houses are large but not lofty and are built of round bricks the streets are wide and clean there are seven mosques each surmounted by a square tower from which the muezzin calls the faithful to prayer counting the floating population the capital of the sudan does not contain more than from ten to twelve thousand inhabitants timbuktu situated in the midst of a vast plain of shifting white sand trades in salt only the soil being quite unsuitable to any sort of cultivation the town is always full of people who come to exact what they call presents but what might with more justice be styled forced contributions it is a public calamity when the tuareg chief arrives he remains in the town a couple of months living with his numerous followers at the expense of the inhabitants until he has wrung costly presents from them terror has extended the domination of these wandering tribes over all the neighboring peoples whom they rob and pillage without mercy the tuareg costume is the same as that of the arabs with the exception of the headdress day and night they wear a cotton band which covers the eyes and comes down over the nose so that they are obliged to raise the head in order to see the same band goes once or twice around the head and hides the mouth coming down below the chin so that the tip of the nose is all that is visible the tuareks are perfect riders and mounted on first-rate horses or on fleet camels each man is armed with a spear a shield and a dagger they are the pirates of the desert and innumerable are the caravans they have robbed or blackmailed four days after callier's arrival at timbuktu he heard that a caravan was about to start for talafet and as he knew that another would not go for three months fearing detection he resolved to join this one it consisted of a large number of merchants and six hundred camels starting on the fourth of may eighteen twenty eight he arrived after terrible sufferings from the heat and a sandstorm in which he was caught at el arawan a town of no private resources but important as the emporium for the tudani salt exported at san sanding on the banks of the niger and also as the halting-place of caravans from taflet mogador gat drat and tripoli the merchants here exchanging european wares for ivory gold slaves wax honey and sudan stuffs on the nineteenth may the caravan left el arwan for morocco by way of the sahara to the traveller's usual sufferings from heat thirst and privations of all kinds was now added the pain of a wound incurred in the fall from his camel he was also taunted by the moors and even by their slaves who ridiculed his habits and his awkwardness and even sometimes threw stones at him when his back was turned towards them often says callier one of the moors would say to me in a contemptuous tone you see that slave well i prefer him to you so you may guess in what esteem i hold you this insult would be accompanied with roars of laughter 
under these miserable circumstances callier passed the wells of tarzas in whose vicinity salt is found also those of amul gamil amul taf el ikrif surrounded by date trees wood willows and rushes and reached marabouti and el harib districts whose inhabitants are disgustingly dirty in their habits el harib lies between two chains of low hills dividing it from morocco to which it is tributary its inhabitants divided into several nomad tribes employ themselves chiefly in the breeding of camels they would be rich and contented but for the ceaseless exactions of the berber arabs on the twelfth july the caravan left el harib and eleven days later entered the province of talafet famous for its majestic date trees at gorland callier was welcomed with some kindness by the moors though he was not admitted to their houses lest the women who are visible only to the men of their own families should be seen by the irreverent eyes of a stranger callier visited the market which is held three times a week near the little village called bohem three miles from gorland and was surprised at the variety of articles exposed for sale in it vegetables native fruits fodder for cattle poultry sheep etc etc all in large quantities water in leather bottles was carried about for sale to all who cared to drink in the exhausting heat by men who announced their approach by ringing a small handbell moorish and spanish coins alone passed current the province of tafilet contains several large villages and small towns gorland el exeba soso Bohem and Resant, which our travellers visited, contained some twelve hundred inhabitants each, all merchants and owners of property. The soil is very productive. Corn, vegetables, dates, European fruits, and tobacco are cultivated in large quantities. Among the sources of wealth in Tafilet, we may name very fine sheep, whose beautifully white wool makes very pretty coverlets, oxen, first-rate horses, donkeys, and mules as at eldra a good many jews live in the villages together with mohammedans they lead a miserable life go about half naked and are constantly struck and insulted whether brokers shoemakers blacksmiths porters or whatever their ostensible occupation they all lend money to the moors on the second august the caravan resumed its march and after passing afelech taniera marca deira rahaba el Irak, tamarac ain zeland el guim guigo and sapporo callier arrived at fez where he made a short stay and then pressed on to rabat the ancient salah exhausted by his long march with nothing to eat but a few dates obliged to depend on the charity of the mussulmans who as often as not declined to give him anything and finding at fez no representative of france but an old jew named ismail who acted as consular agent and who being afraid of compromising himself would not let callier embark on a portuguese brig bound for gibraltar the traveller eagerly availed himself of a fortunate chance for going to tangiers there he was kindly received by the vice-consul monsieur de la porte who wrote at once to the commandant of the french station at cadiz and sent him off bound for that port disguised as a sailor in a corvette 
the landing at toulon of the young frenchman fresh from timbuktu was a very unexpected event in the scientific world with nothing to aid him but his own invincible courage and patience he had brought to a satisfactory conclusion an exploit for which the french and english geographical societies had offered large rewards alone without any resources to speak of without the aid of government or of any scientific society by sheer force of will he had succeeded in throwing a flood of new light on an immense tract of africa callier was not indeed the first european who had visited timbuktu in the preceding year major laying had penetrated into that mysterious city but he had paid for his expedition with his life and we shall presently relate the touching details of his fatal trip Callier had returned to Europe, and brought back with him the curious journal from which our narrative is taken. It is true his profession of the Mohammedan faith had prevented him from taking astronomical observations, and from making sketches and notes freely, but only at the price of his seeming apostasy could he have passed through the region where the very name of a Christian is held in abhorrence how many strange observations how many fresh and exact details did callier add to our knowledge of northwest africa it had cost clapperton two journeys to traverse africa from tripoli to benin callier had crossed from senegal to morocco in one but at what a price how much fatigue how much suffering how many privations had the frenchman endured timbuktu was known at last as well as the new caravan route across the sahara by way of the oasis of tafilet and el harib was callier compensated for his physical and mental sufferings by the aid which the geographical society sent to him at once by the prize of ten thousand francs adjudged to him by the cross of the legion of honor and the fame and glory attached to his name we suppose he was he says more than once in his narrative that nothing but his wish to add by his discoveries to the glory of france his native country could have sustained him under the trying circumstances and insults to which he was constantly subjected all honor then to the patient traveller the sincere patriot the great discoverer we have still to speak of the expedition which cost alexander gordon laying his life but before giving our necessarily brief account for his journals were all lost we must say a few words about his early life and an interesting excursion made by him to timini kuran and sulemana when he discovered the sources of the niger laying was born in edinburgh in seventeen ninety four entered the english army at the age of sixteen and soon distinguished himself in eighteen twenty he had gained the rank of lieutenant and was serving as aide-de-camp to sir charles mccarthy then governor-general of western africa at this time war was raging between amara the mandingo almame and sanasi one of his principal chiefs trade had never been very flourishing in sierra leone and this state of things dealt it its death blow mccarthy anxious to put matters on a better footing determined to interfere and bring about a reconciliation between the rival chiefs he decided on sending an embassy to cambia on the border of the scarsis and from thence to malacuri and the mandingo camp the enterprising character intelligence and courage of laying led to his being chosen by the governor as his envoy and on the seventh january eighteen twenty two he received instructions to report on the manufactures and topography of the provinces mentioned and to ascertain the feeling of the inhabitants on the abolition of slavery 
the first interview with yaradi leader of the sulemana troops accompanying the almamay proved that the negroes of the districts under notice had only the vaguest idea on european civilization and that they had had but little intercourse with the whites every article of our dress says liang was a subject of admiration observing me pull off my gloves yaredi stared covered his widely opened mouth with his hands and at length exclaimed allah akbar he has pulled the skin off his hands by degrees and as he became more familiar he alternately rubbed down dr mackey's hair and mine then indulging himself in a loud laugh he would exclaim they are not men they are not men he repeatedly asked my interpreter if we had bones these preliminary excursions during which lang ascertained that many sulemanas owned a good deal of gold and ivory led to his asking the governor's sanction to explore the districts to the east of the colony with a view to increasing the trade of sierra leone by admitting their productions mccarthy liked lang's proposal and submitted it to the council it was decided that lang should be authorized to penetrate into sulemana by the most convenient route for future communications lang left sierra leone on the sixteenth april eighteen twenty four and rode up the rocal river to rakan the chief town of temeni his interview with the king of rakan was extremely amusing to do him honor lang had a salvo of ten charges fired as he came into the court in which the reception was to be held at the noise the king stopped drew back darted a furious look at his visitor and ran away it was with great difficulty that the cowardly monarch was induced to return at last he came back and seating himself with great dignity in his chair of state he questioned the major he wished to know says lang why he had been fired at and was with some difficulty persuaded that it had been done out of honor to him why did you point your guns to the ground that you might see our intention was to show you respect but the pebbles flew in my face why did you not point in the air because we feared to burn the thatches on your houses well then give me some rum needless to add that the interview became more cordial after the major had complied with his request the portrait of the timony monarch deserves a place in our volume for more than one reason it is a case of ab uno disceomnes ba samira to quote laying again the principal chief or king of this part of the timony country is about ninety years of age with a mottled shriveled-up skin resembling in color that of an alligator more than that of a human being with dim greenish eyes far sunk in his head and a bleached twisted beard hanging down about two feet from his chin like the king of the opposite district he wore a necklace of coral and leopard's teeth but his mantle was brown and dirty as his skin his swollen legs like those of an elephant were to be observed from under his trousers of baft which might have been originally white but from the wear of several years had assumed a greenish appearance End quote. End of section thirteen